This edition of Monocle on Saturday was first broadcast on the 30th of December 2023. I'm Georgina Godwin, broadcasting to you live from Midori House in London. This is Monocle on Saturday. Coming up on today's programme, we'll have a look back at the year with journalists with the Sydney Morning Herald and The Age, Latika Burke. Then... Much of what we learned this year was unamusing in the extreme, as for the umpty thousandth consecutive year, we learned that humankind had not, in many respects, learned all that much. Andrew Muller looks back at 2023. First, though, here's the news. Russia has drawn sharp criticism at the UN Security Council for launching massive missile and drone attacks against Ukraine after Kyiv and its supporters called for an urgent meeting of the 15-member body to address the strikes, which killed 31 civilians and wounded more than 160 others in the biggest aerial attack since the start of the war. South Africa has asked the International Court of Justice for an urgent order declaring that Israel is in breach of its obligations under the 1948 Genocide Convention in its crackdown against the Palestinian group Hamas in Gaza. Severe thunderstorms battered parts of eastern Australia today, bringing heavy rain, giant hail and strong winds, days after another storm hit the region over the Christmas holidays. A wild weather system is forecast with southeast and Queensland expected to bear the brunt of the storm. And Grammy-winning Colombian singer Shakira, one of the world's top-selling musicians, has been immortalised in her famous belly-dancing pose in a giant bronze statue in her home city of Barranquilla. And that's your Monocle Radio News. Hello and welcome to Monocle on Saturday. I'm Georgina Godwin and with me in the studio is Latika Burke. Latika, good morning. Good morning, Georgina. Some light rain pattering outside, so it's nice to be in here all cosy and snug with you. We are all cosy, aren't we? It, it is very cosy. <laughs> We've been talking about how cosy we were over Christmas as well. Neither of us did anything remotely glamorous. We put on our slippers mostly. I've got Christmas worked out finally. It's taken 39 years, but the <laughs> trick is to stay at home just invite the friends or loved ones around that you actually do relax with and it's not a stressful endeavour or encounter to see them and just eat great food. Absolutely. That's I couldn't all agree with you, more. you need. Yeah. What about New Year? How are you celebrating? Well, I'm not really a New Year's person. My tradition is normally to order a pizza uh, and go to bed and maybe peek over my balcony and see if I can see the fireworks at midnight. But this year, I'm uh, deciding to become a a bit more um, in the spirit of the revelry. And my friend has landed us tickets to go inside the House of Commons. And uh, for people who are not familiar with the building, there's an incredible bar that literally sits over the Thames. It's on the edge of the River Thames, looking towards the London Eye. And it's called the Strangers Bar. You can only go into that bar if you are invited by an MP. And fortunately, uh, I have been invited this year. So it'll be wonderful sipping down champagne watching London's fireworks from probably one of the best vantage points you could get. Fantastic. That sounds wonderful. Yeah, I'm glad you asked, Georgina. (laughs) (laughs) That was the brag I was willing to make. (laughs) 
<laughs> let's well, let's let's continue on the theme of the House of Commons or generally governments. Uh, as we look back at the year, because, of course, this is our last Monocle on Saturday for 2023. So we thought it would be interesting just to see what we've been talking about this year and really what's been making the news. Uh, and, of course, Ukraine was front and centre at the beginning of the year, but that has changed as events uh, unvolved, uh, evolved. Yeah, I think a good way to do this exercise is to look back at what we might have said this time last year. And I think heading into 2023, we were somewhat more optimistic about what Ukraine might achieve on the battlefield. We were certainly a lot more optimistic about the West's ability to unite in support of Ukraine. And I think we were seeing some signs of progress that perhaps uh, the China-Iran-Russia axis might be something that we were making some progress in pushing back uh, upon in the West. I think we end 2023 with a complete reversal of those expectations. And what we have seen uh, particularly, I think, um, triggered or, or perhaps escalated by the war in, in Israel um, and, and between Hamas and Israel is not just the fraying of Western unity around conflict and some of the morality arguments that were made about the invasion of Ukraine, but also a real exposure of our fractures within our own society, our own weaknesses. And across all of that, the different dynamic I think that's come into play this year is the spectre of Trump. Mm -hmm. This expectation now that Trump may well and truly be restored as president and that really will recalibrate the entire global axis and how we look at all these things. That dynamic was not there. 12 months ago. Mm. I think 12 months ago, we were all pretty confident that Trump was maybe a slight chance of coming back, but not really a, a real prospect. That's, again, something that has completely been flipped on its head in this year. So overall, in terms of global cohesion, I think we do end the world, uh, we, we do end the year with the world in a far less safe, a far less stable and a far less reliable situation than we might have been dreaming to hope for in 2023, uh, 2022. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, let, let's take some of those one at a time. Ukraine, for instance. So as you say, we're much more confident at the beginning of the year, but now it looks as if funds have dried up and a lot of this is to do with a sort of just war and empathy fatigue, but also the events in, in Gaza. I think it was always going to be very hard for Ukraine, which made such an incredible beginning of winning information war, largely in the West, not not all over the non-aligned world. Uh, but certainly you had this wonderfully charismatic leader in Zelensky, incredible shows of bravery and cohesion by the Ukrainians themselves and their willingness to fight against uh, a much larger invader. Uh, and then, of course, you had donations coming in left, right and centre. Now, Australia's been a really good example of this. Just very gradually, the momentum at the governmental and in the defence level for sending more aid to Ukraine began to change, just as the government had changed. Now, of course, those two things are related. And then you began to see elsewhere around the world, well, hang on, how long can we sustain this ourselves? And, of course, now with the politics in the United States, the withdrawal of funding uh, which is now dried up for the end of the year because Congress has been unable to approve any new funding, and then we head well into election year. 
Um, it does leave Ukraine in a much tighter spot. Now, everyone is now talking about how Ukraine can sustain its war effort if the US withdraws support. All eyes are on Europe. Can it step up? Europe hasn't stepped up enough. It's certainly there's some countries that have done some amazing work, Poland and Germany among them, um, in, in lifting what they can contribute. But would any of us say that Europe is ready to fill the gap that the Americans would leave if Trump were to come back and really withdraw all funding? And even before that, we have the dilemma of now Congress unwilling to pass this uh, funding for the next year. So it's a very precarious situation for Ukraine. There's no doubt about that. Within Ukraine itself, we have seen tensions begin to emerge that weren't there in the first year of the war. I think all of these things were inevitable, but they all do seem to be coming uh, two ahead at once. And you see uh, Zelensky and his top general, Zelushny, uh, bickering. You see some slight ebbing away of support for Zelensky. It's nothing significant or major yet, but it is beginning. And so what happens in two two years of this war and then on? I mean, 2024 is a huge unknown for us. Mm. Where is Russia at the end of 2023? Look, I think Russia's had a very good year. Um, they started the year out on the back foot. There was widespread expectations that the Ukrainian counteroffensive uh, might achieve the heroics that they had seen and achieved in Kiev, for example. That did not materialise. And then, of course, you know, you will never find anyone who can say we think uh, the Russians encouraged Hamas to launch its attack. It's not as clear as that. But there's certainly no doubt that the Iranian-backed Hamas attack on Israel has completely recalibrated the world. It has been a hugely divisive issue in our democracies. It is straining the Biden administration. And it's a very, very toxic conflict in a way that the Ukraine conflict was largely not for the bulk of our societies. I mean, with Ukraine, there was a clear right and a wrong. You could pick a side. Well, also look at the civil response. You know, in Ukraine, I mean, there are still uh, thousands of Ukrainians being home supported in Britain. You don't really read about these stories, but mm. it's happening and it's real and it's a very everyday ongoing generosity when the headlines have long gone that people are continuing to acquit here in the UK and other countries, of course, across Europe. Poland has been an amazing recipient of Ukrainian refugees. So you have civic support for Ukrainians themselves and their mission and their goals in a way that just hasn't happened for Israel after it's, it was attacked. And you have seen these demonstrations in our cities in Australia, in the US and here in London week after week, of huge marches demanding that the government back a ceasefire, demanding that there be justice for Palestinians. And, of course, these are very, very divisive and toxic debates at the best of times. Uh, but at the worst of times, they're really, really, really bad. And we are in that position. There's no doubt about that now. And so Russia comes out of this year, I think, with some hope that the West, uh, the West patients has start to ebb. This was always the goal for Russia. Uh, obviously, Russia failed to take Kiev in, in a matter of days, and that's been a failure. But long term, if Russia can outlast Western endurance on Ukraine, then that is a significant victory. And you will see countries like China and Iran watching from the sidelines saying, well, 
we now know what it takes. It's one or two years or it's 18 months max uh, that they have the appetite for these sorts of conflicts. And so I think Russia has also managed to evade sanctions. Uh, I think the expectation of what the the damage the sanctions would do has not really materialised in the way that other countries enforcing or imposing those sanctions would have hoped. And a good demonstration of Russia's ringing confidence, I think, was Vladimir Putin holding his end-of-year news conference this year. That was not something he was doing uh, 12 months ago. And so you see, I think, a much more confident Putin as he looks ahead also to 2024, wondering if the American people will reinstate Donald Trump. Well, let's look at elections because globally more voters than ever in history will head to the polls. At least 64 countries plus the European Union, which represents a combined population of about 49% of the people of the world, are meant to hold national elections. And the results of which for many will prove consequential for years to come. America obviously is one of those. Um, I think Taiwan and, and the United States are the two elections that determine the shape of 2024 and beyond. But I must say, Georgina, I'm just dying to know who's going to win that Russian one. (laughs) (laughs) So uh, not all elections are equal when we talk about people going to elections in the super year of 2024, for sure. I think India is a really important one because I think the expectation is that Modi will be uh, re-elected and Modi himself, I mean, there's a huge question here for the West in how It deals with Modi because he has shown some streaks of authoritarian governance, uh, cracking down on press, and, of course, the Canadian incident where Canada accuses the Indian authorities of assassinating uh, Sikh separatists, as, as India would call them, on Canadian soil. So not insignificant issues at a time when the world is desperate, the West particularly is desperately trying to get India on its side as a hedge against China, and then here we have... Uh, China uh, itself becoming increasingly muscular in in the world. Mm. Um, So I think the United States election is certainly, you know, nobody can doubt that's what the whole world will be geared towards. But I think uh, think it's January 16, is it, the Taiwanese election. This is also a really, really important one. And there's probably not a lot of huge understanding of Taiwanese politics, uh, much the same in in the same way there is of the United States political uh, quagmire, shall we say. Um, but I think these will be the bookends of 2024 that will define the, the next, you know, five years, maybe the rest of our decade. Absolutely. Also, South Africa, a very significant election there, and that's really going to determine what happens to, to that part of the world. I think that's something we've got to keep a very close eye on there. Will the ANC finally uh, lose power? It's been in power, obviously, since independence or since Is since this the a possibility? I have not followed um, South, it South is Africa. A, it is a possibility, uh, but it's hard to see. I think I think the most likely outcome there is some kind of coalition, interesting. Um, which 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 will be interesting. Of course, we're watching the DRC, the Congo, right now, where election results are being hugely contested. They're leaking out throughout today. We may have a result by the end of the day, but I think there is going to be many many complaints about about that election. Mm. And um, of course, we've got an election here in the yeah. UK next year. Well, and I mean, we laugh about Russia and say it's a foregone conclusion, surely Labour has to win this election here. I think so. Uh, you never say never about electoral outcomes, and they do need an enormous swing right across <clears throat> pardon me, the country to, to bring it home, bigger than what Blair achieved. 
Uh, personally, I do think that the mood is there for this sort of change, but there's still a lot of people, surprisingly, who, who say to me, no, I, I think that we can still contain Labor to a minority government. So that's also a possibility. But one thing I will say for Britain, you know, I was listening to an interview with an American last week and they were going through all the elections and it's almost uh, to its credit how little the British election is talked about in the context of this super year of elections next year. Because actually, no matter who is in government and despite all the turmoil that British politics has had in the last six, eight years, and it has been at times a real embarrassment for the UK, there's no doubt about that. But despite all of that, some things absolutely run true no matter who's in government. And we know that the UK will support Ukraine. We know that the so-called special relationship between the US and the UK will endure and prosper, even if it's a Keir Starmer and Donald Trump in you know, combo. And I think that that is actually something that's, this is what I love about Britain. There's just an understatedness to the way it does acquit itself on the world stage sometimes. And mm. I think it's it's a credit to Britain that we all know that deep down. And so it's almost not worth talking about. But I think at this time when we're talking about how horrible and upsetting and uncertain the world is, it's it's a, it's also good to highlight the, the certainties we do have. Yeah. Of course, migration is one of the issues that is going to be influencing many, many of these elections. Uh, not least here in, in the UK. Yeah, and I think this is a real turnaround from the election climate that we would have had, say, if we were dissecting 2022, because I think climate change was a really big determining factor in so many elections that year, including in Australia, for example. Now, fast forward, and even though we have had, I think, the hottest year this year, I mean, Christmas here was absurdly warm. It was 14 degrees, middle of December. Uh, climate change has actually fallen off the radar as a topical issue. Now, that is not, I, I, I'm not trying to say here that I think people are now going slow on, on the transition to renewable energies or cleaner, greener energy. I don't think that at all. I think COP was actually significant progress. Uh, and I think you're going to see over the next 10 years a lot more discussion about nuclear in areas that haven't previously had it. But as an electoral issue... Is that the same driver of votes and the same driver of people to the ballot box in countries that don't have compulsory voting that we have seen in the years until now? I don't think so. And I think one of the things that may be a substitute issue will be migration. We have seen this in the Netherlands. That was a real shock to a lot of people in Brussels. Uh, that Gert Wilders, after so many years of uh, denouncing immigration, finally got there mm. in terms of topping the polls. Um, we have seen Europe grapple with migration in a way that it was previously unwilling to encounter, to, to countenance. Things like paying Tunisia to try and hold back boats. Things like talking about detaining people now in processing centres. These were Some of these measures were taken up by Australia years and years ago and Australia was criticised as a human rights violator, which, don't get me wrong, Australia absolutely has violated human rights in pursuing its asylum seeker policies. But you do see this um, catch-up effect, I think, across the world. The UK migration is clearly going to be front and centre of that election 
And of course, you have seen what's taking place in the United States where they have tried to link border issues to the passage of further aid for Ukraine. So migration, I think, is going to be what climate was in past elections gone by. And of course, the two are very much linked because as places become uninhabitable, those people move. Uh, Let's just have a quick look at AI because, of course, crypto and AI have also been really big stories this year. Yeah, I think tech had another year of people's distrust in tech, I think, only growing. There was a lot of fanfare around AI and I think ChatGTP launched, but more as a toy rather than anything really transformative. And I almost wonder if AI kind of blew its original shot a little too early because we're not seeing what the Elons of the world would say in that AI is going to take over every single job. I think that was a very silly thing for Elon to say and an even stupider thing for Rishi Sunak to be chuckling away at. But um, I digress. I think AI is something that we are yet to see across our society and in terms of how it really will transform us and what regulation is required. I mean, there's a very interesting debate even. You can train Georgina, you and I talking here. We could put this into AI tools and get them to chat back to us. Should that even be allowed? Yeah. You know, should... I mean, why are we talking about this as though, hey, these these things can do this? Why aren't we saying, hang on, no, I think my identity, my voice, the way I talk is something that's a bit like a biometric and you, the government, should be stopping these companies from allowing people to take voices, even if they are broadcast publicly. I mean, of course, we, the New York Times is, is now suing, isn't it? Yes. The New York Times this week uh, sued OpenAI because it found GTP was regurgitating stuff uh, from New York Times pieces that were behind the paywall. So what does that tell us? AI works by using copyrighted content produced by creatives like yourself, me and thousands of other journalists and content producers and creators, and it trains its models. So it's only ever as good as the content it's trained upon, but we have copyright over these things. And has OpenAI asked the New York Times for its copyright? Well, the New York Times says no. Now, OpenAI actually has some struck some deals with, uh, for example, Politico, the Axel Springer Group, to plug all those stories into the model. And I do think that's very frightening. You'll see a world, I think, in the not-too-distant future where very basic news reports, based on things like weather and police and sports reports, um, will be generated by robots. I think that's, that's coming sooner than we probably think. But in terms of, I mean, we saw the crypto... Uh, boss um, detained. I don't. I don't think AI has had a tremendously wonderful. Uh, sorry, tech itself has had a tremendously wonderful year, and Elon, I guess, Musk has become that totemic villain yeah. for big tech and where it stands. And I, I think. If you kind of look back, not even last year, but look back to the start of the decade, we were so much more optimistic about tech. We were so much more hopeful about it and positive. And I just think people are abandoning it in a, in a bigger way than we fully grasp. Hmm. Letika, I want to talk about animals now because all of that's so deeply depressing. Oh, I'm sorry. It's a little early on a Saturday, isn't it? Uh, should we talk about the top five animals in 2023? Yes, I was very intrigued with this article you sent me. Um, so number because one. Because I hadn't heard of many of these Had you animals. not? No. Sally the sea lion. So she was the sea lion that lived in uh, Central Park and there was big floods, heavy rains in September 
uh, and she uh, escaped her enclosure to explore other parts of Central Park Zoo. Um, and uh, she took a little tour, but in the end decided that actually she would prefer to be back in her enclosure with her sea lion friends. Don't we all? <laughs> I don't have any friends that, with sea lions. That was but... our Christmas, Georgina. <laughs> <laughs> That's true. <laughs> okay, cocaine hippos. Well, I'm always very um, stunned that this story doesn't get like day-to-day attention because Pablo Escobar's hippos that he acquired and then brought up um, have just been breeding almost out of control in Colombia. And they can't restrain them because hippos are like really bloody dangerous and really scary and they kill people. And so you've just got these hippos roaming around in Colombia that nobody can control. And they're called cocaine hippos, but that's not because they're on cocaine. I'm reliably (laughs) assured by this article, Georgina. It's just because they were obviously acquired with perhaps the proceeds of sales of cocaine. Right, right. Now, Commander. Commander is, of course, President Biden's dog. Uh, and he's, he's a German shepherd. Uh, he's been biting people. Yes, this was the one animal I absolutely did know about. I was very amused at poor old Commander because he's not had a great year, keeps biting all the Secret Service. But wouldn't you too? I mean, if you've been brought up to protect your vice president and then suddenly the vice president is now the president and there's everyone else taking over your job, well... Maybe Commander fears, you know, AI protectors are taking out his job. Absolutely. Uh, And this article poses a really, really interesting question, which is, do all Secret Service agents taste the same? (laughs) (laughs) Oh, we shouldn't laugh. I'm actually Uh, terrified of being bitten by a dog, I must say. Pandemonium. Okay, I have a secret to confess to you. The thing I do when I'm just being stupid on my phone looking for something fun that I do not want to read depressing news I watch panda reels <laughs> endlessly I love cats they're my favorite and I have a cat but pandas are just obsessive content I implore you listeners of monocle to go online and anytime you're feeling sad or down or whatever just look up panda videos because these creatures are so joyful but so stupid. I do not know how they ever (laughs) survived in the wild because all they ever do is roll around, hit each other, have some fights, go to sleep. Sometimes it's too exhausting for them to complete their role, so they just lie back (laughs) on the ground, paws up in the air looking at the sky, and I think, wow, if one believes in reincarnation, I'm either coming back as a cat or a panda. (laughs) Well, of course, China's been uh, recalling some of its pandas, but... uh, as it falls out with various people, um, and the, hence pandemonium, panda diplomacy. But the final, uh, the final animal I want to look at is uh, humpback whales. Um, now, this is uh, a, <laughs> this is a story based around uh, the former Brazilian president Jair Bolsonaro, um, and he uh, likes to jet ski close to humpback whales. Uh, it's very odd. And then the humpback whales don't like this and come and tell him where to go. Um, I have been following this story for quite some time because there's growing cases, actually, of whales tracking sailors and boats and really telling them where to go. And it's actually putting people off sailing. I've, I've listened to lots of interviews where professional sailors who've been sailing the world for decades are now 
actively avoiding. Um, this has been happening around Spain particularly. And, of course, we know whales are one of the most intelligent creatures out there. So you do wonder how much, I don't know, maybe there's secret whale caucus going on underwater where they're saying, right, this is our moment, guys. 2024, Trump, you've seen nothing. This is our year. <laughs> Wouldn't that be great? The culmination of all the elections is the whales take over the world. I'm quite happy with that outcome. <laughs> <laughs> Latika, thank you very much. Let's end the show with an alternative look back at the year gone by. Here's Monocle's contributing editor, Andrew Muller, with a special What We Learned in 2023. If I could save time in a bottle... We learned this week, or were reminded by the producers this week, that it is that time of year at which we are expected to broaden our remit beyond the last seven days and instead reflect on what we learned from the previous 365. We also learned, and to be honest, they could have been less brusque about this, that they did not share our enthusiasm for the idea of a special programme in which the previous 50 or so What We Learned monologues were spliced together and played back-to-back in one glorious six-hour satirical reverie. Perhaps, and this is obviously a very real and legitimate concern, they feared being sued for the medical expenses of listeners whose sides had actually split or had laughed their heads literally off. (laughs) Or we thought maybe we could just clip some of our best-loved whimsical commentary on events of 2023 as a sort of highlight reel and save ourselves having to write a whole other thing. Like, for example, this absolute ball terror from late April when we remarked hilariously hilariously, upon the coincidence of the United Kingdom hosting at around the same time the coronation of King Charles III and the Eurovision Song Contest. A reminder that the great event will take place on May the 6th, just a week before Eurovision, and yes, one will be an undignified circus of dubiously credentialed foreigners descending on Britain to caper about inexplicably in daft costumes to a dismal soundtrack, while the other is a song contest. However, circumstances forced a rethink, and by circumstances we mean producers telling us we wouldn't get paid. Oh, (laughs) Just get on with it. They did, yes, also tell us that. All of which said, much of what we learned this year was unamusing in the extreme, as for the umpty thousandth consecutive year, we learned that humankind had not, in many respects, learned all that much. We learned that this guy... Ladies and gentlemen, the Bible says that there is a time for peace and a time for war. This is a time for war. Had not learned that just because the only thing you have is a hammer, it does not necessarily follow that everything else is a nail. And we learned that a similar somewhat partial reading of the book of Ecclesiastes, seriously lads, the moral of the thing is actually in chapter 3 verses 19 and 20, that bracingly existential stuff about all being vanity and us all coming from and returning to dust, was being clung to by this guy. 
Though we did learn as Russia's 72-hour lightning conquest of Ukraine lumbered into its second year that Russia is, despite itself, capable of enhancing the general gaiety with a brief comedic interlude, at least a brief interlude of that specifically Russian variety of comedy in which an amount of futile slapstick precedes the violent demise of the principal protagonist. There's a pretty wild situation unfolding in Russia tonight. The White House says it is monitoring. It all started earlier this evening when that man, uh, Putin's chef, Evgeny Prigozhin, the head of a Russian-affiliated mercenary group that's been fighting in Ukraine, appeared to release a video on social media accusing Russian military leaders of misleading the country and its president, Vladimir Putin, over the initial reasons for the invasion of Ukraine itself. Yes, we learned that among those who had developed reservations re the decision of Russian President Vladimir Putin to plough billions of rubles and hundreds of thousands of his fellow citizens into the fields of Ukraine for, let's check that again absolutely no good reason whatsoever was Yevgeny Prigozhin, the Leningrad hot dog cart operative turned international mercenary warlord. From Prigozhin's abortive mutiny and subsequent events, we learned two things, really. One was a reiteration of that whole thing about come at the king, best not miss. The other was the unwisdom of flying domestic in Russia, having affronted its president. Sticking, however, with the theme of grimly farcical aerial combat, if one story dominated at least a portion of the 2023 news cycle, while also seeming like it was some kind of grand metaphor for our times, it was that peculiar interregnum during which the United States, and therefore the world beyond, was transfixed by the spectacle of an ungainly bag of hot air blundering stupidly about the place with probably malevolent intent. I did everything right and they indicted me. And yes, there was also a Chinese spy balloon. We learned from the bumbling marauding of this pair of bloated dirigibles, however, that one is much more easily dealt decisively with than the other. We learned that a Chinese spy balloon is no match for a US Air Force F-22. Though one can only wonder at the strange melancholy that must afflict a victorious fighter pilot having to paint that one on his nose cone. We learned that a rap sheet 91 charges long with the prospect of more where those came from is insufficient, judging by current polling, to dissuade a hefty plurality of American voters from returning to Earth's most powerful office, someone who may be obliged to spend his second stint leading the free world from inside the Hooskow. We learned in sum of no more astute diagnosis of what continued to ail us in 2023 than the one provided by former Republican Congresswoman Liz Cheney, who, in happier, saner times, we milk-toast metropolitan media elite types enjoyed the luxury of regarding as one of the bad guys. What we've done in our politics is create a situation where we're electing idiots. For Monocle Radio, I'm Andrew Mullett. I'm the hot sun, I fought the law and the 
Many thanks to Andrew. And that's all for Monocle on Saturday for this week. Many thanks to our producer and studio engineer, Mariella Bevan, and my guest was Latika Burke. Monocle on Saturday returns next weekend for our first show of 2024. I'm Georgina Godwin. Thank you for listening. <laughs>